our sense of ourself, I believe, is quite fluid. And so beliefs that I held when I was, for example, 16, I'm 46 now, they're not identical. We want to amalgamate a sense of ourselves into a whole. And so we, some people ag- aggressively revise our history of who we were. I'm not that interested in that. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, the stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have award-winning poet Shara McCallum. Her works have earned her a 2011 National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship for Poetry and a Library of Congress Witterbiner Fellowship. And most recently, she was the judge for the 2019 Dogfish Head Poetry Contest. So welcome to the podcast, Shara. Thanks, Stephanie. I'm happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you here as well. Um, and we were talking a little bit about the, uh, before the podcast, about the Dogfish Head Poetry yeah. Contest. So would you tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved with, with, our, with our, one of our lo- big local breweries here? I think just through luck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the person who is the coordinator for the prize reached out to me. Um, maybe last spring, actually, and asked if I would judge the prize. And I do judge various things. And I found this one really interesting. Um, my husband, as we were chatting about, is a big fan of beer and breweries. So I knew of Dogfish Head Brewery. And um, I've been to Rehoboth Beach twice before connected to writing. Funny enough, I've never been here otherwise. Mm. <laughs> um, many, many years ago, uh, Mary Beth Fisher used to run The Writers at the Beach, a nonprofit writing workshop. And I taught in that and gave readings and workshops there um, two different times. So I knew of Rehoboth Beach, I knew of the Dogfish Head Brewery, and as I said, I like to judge um, prizes because it's one of the things as a poet you do that's a communal enterprise as opposed to the work of a poet, which is often solitary. So all of those things came together and I said, sure, I would be happy to do this. (laughs) It's an easy sell. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I I wanted to talk about the judging process because... There's got to be more to it than you like it or you don't like Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Because the, the, if you want to bring in any ob- objectivity to it, it, there there has to be other things. So <clears throat> what are the things that you are that you looked for in making your decisions this, in this reading time. the submissions? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to answer that in two different ways. One is that I think there's nothing objective about judging a poetry prize. Um, the act of reading a poem and writing a poem is a deeply subjective experience. Having said that, um, what you look for as a as a poet reading manuscripts is craft, which there are some standards. Right, it's akin to um, a contrary ball- to popular right belief. contrary to popular <laughs> belief. It is an art. It is a tradition. <laughs> it is a practice, and so you can actually observe certain elements in the same way everyone can dance or sing. But we can easily see when people have practiced singing or dancing as an art that they are trained in a certain tradition. So I would say yes, of course, art is subjective and at the same time what I'm really looking for is a few different elements of craft that are going to make a work leap out of a menu you know a submission pool Um, I'm also thinking the the memorability of a piece of art matters and so I read things many times and I put them down Mm -hmm. and then I think which ones do I want to return to Um, particularly when you're judging a prize, I'm only seeing at that point as the final judge, the finalists. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing really, really excellent work on the level of 
craft. Right. You didn't have to go right. through the first yeah. ones to see what's going to make it. Not at all. And that, that work is something, um, you know, many years ago I used to do this work of screening. Um, but now I tend to come in at the very end. So when I'm getting the manuscripts, I'm seeing people who are all very high-level practitioners. Right. So it gets more complicated. I'm starting to think, especially for book prizes, how does this hold together as a book? Sometimes the ones that didn't um, leap out of the pool were ones that I think maybe individual poems were incredibly memorable, but as a whole, the collection might have been more uneven. That's all to say any number of the ones that I was given I could have selected. Um, the one I chose was particularly memorable because it tells an overarching story. Um, I love myth and retellings of women and myth. And so that, I think, came into play as well. I think how Becky has handled the particular story that she's dealing with is very interesting to me. Uh, it has a lot of cultural relevance right now, her book. And all of those things combined to make me say, yeah, why choose any given book at a given time? Maybe right now, especially with concerns about women, abuse, treatment of women in our culture, this book seemed important. And uh, the Linda Blasky shared yeah. Becky Gold Gibson's uh, collection called Indelible, and it she is. shared that mm -hmm. with me. And I remember reading it. And I, I mean, I, I was a little lost at times, but I remember thinking, like, I can't really pull myself out of right. this. Right, right. Like, I was going through, and I was like, well, where are we going next? And and I did follow that. She sort of starts at one point, and it's kind of a bit of a, a journey piece to it. Yeah. With a lot of different, there's a lot of different themes and images that kind of continue to kind of repeat and play. Right. And I remember thinking, like, I can see why this would have captured someone's attention. Exactly. Because even though... For me, I was like, wow, this feels like something that I would have read in college and had to have dissected, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like really intensely. But I thought this sense of women, the sense of um, the, the beautiful images that she sort of like puts forward. There's a moment where she's talking about ants, uh, the words being on the page like ants yes. going towards the edge. And I thought, well, I c I'll never forget that now. Exactly. So I can imagine that that exactly. might have been. Definitely. And when, you know, a lot of lot of writers and poets in particular treat myth and this one particularly from the christian tradition of the lydian woman and that story um becky is basically filling in the things we don't know and that's always i think the most interesting vantage point when you're writing about myth is not to just retell the story but what is it that you can do as an act of the imagination milton's paradise lost yates's light and the swan i mean there are some really heavy hitter classic texts of poetry that are engaged fully in this war role of the poet to enter culture through myth yeah in your in your own work yeah. especially especially now um you must you must separate i'm sorry do you separate things that you think are going to be part of a larger work into one-offs or do you find that out afterwards almost always i've written books so I'll, I'll say that you know i've written five books four of which are individual volumes one of them is a new and selected so i sort of think of that as a different enterprise but mm -hmm. the ones that i've written as collections individual volumes those all came together through a period of years of writing and then at some point i would see what i was obsessed with getting it right? Yeah. right so mad woman uh, the most recent definitely arrived in that same form where i kept hearing this voice and i kept thinking who is this woman why does she keep talking to me why is she so angry <laughs> you know, she's really really angry so um a lot of the time or really sad right. so i wrote the poems to figure 
out who she was and try to answer those questions. And I arrived at some tentative conclusions through writing that book. And those poems are those mm -hmm. observations, engagements with voice, culture. Um, a lot of things we've been talking about already, I think, are in play. The most recent book that I'm writing right now is the only one I've ever written, Tony, that is more in the vein of what you suggested, which is that I have certain ideas on the front end. I don't know if I'll pull it off mm -hmm. because it's not the way I typically work, but I'm very interested. I had an idea. I never have an idea. Um, I'm always <laughs> stumbling in the dark. So the trick this time will be to write the poems without the idea prefiguring what each poem does. And I think part of the reason I've never had an idea, I'm sure I do on some unconscious level, it's also a trick, right? is to, so I can be very curious about what it is I'm figuring out. Um, the book I'm working on is about the poet Robert Burns, the 18th century uh, Scottish poet, mm. um, a sort of totemic figure in Scottish literature, culture. Um, we, we had a Scotsman on and he just talked about Robert Burns. Burns, yes. Burns. Robert Burns. The entire yes. time. And I could too, but we're not going to. Um, <laughs> what I will say is just very quickly, um, what struck me, I'm Jamaican and my last name is Scottish and I've been asked a lot, are you Scottish when people meet me? I have a faint accent, which is also really hard for people to place. And what I'll say is my father was a mixed race black Jamaican. So the name that is McCallum is actually uh, the line of my family that's black. And so I have to tell people maybe so, but maybe not in the way you're imagining. <laughs> <laughs> and so this book comes exactly out of that. Um, it is a story, a little known story of Burns, which is that he almost went to Jamaica to work on a slave plantation. And by almost, he had booked passage. He had signed on to do this. This is during a time where he was aware of abolitionism. Mm. The movement was alive and well in Scotland. He was not an unlearned man, despite the sort of myths that abound about him. And I'm fascinated by that. This man who is so identified with like a democratic, republican idealism, not in the way we mean republican in America, by the way, right. but right. in the Enlightenment, this notion of a man's a man for all that, egalitarian rights for people, would also go and become a sl in in involved heavily in um, slavery. And that story interests me. So I'm writing the book. He didn't go, but I'm writing the book of poems that imagines what happens when he does have to go. Which it was a sort of twist of fate um, that never happens for poets. His first book sold out uh, in two weeks, and he had enough money that he didn't have to get on the ship. Just about to yes. say... Um, because eventually you gotta, you gotta earn a living, and then there's a there's a there's always a quandary when it, it comes is. to earning a living. Uh, apropos of only barely that, uh, recently I I put a couple of dollars in the stock market on, yeah. and I'm and I, re, I I I checked out the company. It's a company I can live with, right? And and I put some money and and I left it, and then recently it was purchased by Big Tobacco. Yeah, and yeah. now. What what do you do? You know, right. your questions are exactly the questions that I am interested in, Tony. So I always say that when I give that um, praise about this book, I'm actually not interested in um, any literature where there are good guys and bad guys, and it's a very binary right. view of the world. I don't believe that's true of human nature, and I certainly think it makes for bad art. And so I'm interested in the quandary that Burns is put into, and I imagine for him 
that it was exactly that. He was coming from a position where he was fleeing a bad um, relationship with a woman, and he had many of those. And (laughs) (laughs) he was quite a philanderer in a way. Um, And he also was trapped because he was a bad farmer and kept (laughs) trying to farm. And yeah, he was desperate. So I imagined it exactly in the way you're describing. He's kind of implicated in something as many of us are without desire to support that in a moral sense. And I think that's true. I mean, I have, you know, retirement accounts. Do I know exactly what all of those companies are doing? Nope. (laughs) I am wearing clothes that I bought that I am undoubtedly sure some of them were not fair trade produced fabrics or sewn in, you know, the, the ideal setting where somebody was making a proper wage. So, yes, these questions for me reverberate into our present right now. And how can any of us be pure? I, I don't think there's a way. But at the same time, if you find yourself in the middle of working in the tobacco fields and supporting it in direct fashion, that's a little different right. than this indirect consequence <laughs> right. we're talking about. So I'm interested in what happens if you're in the middle of this. What happens to a person? It's a kind of cruel um thing I've done to Burns I I see that (laughs) but um but my family history is also involved in this so I'm interested in the the cruelty of history and the complexity of it well I think that's one of the things that I mean you were saying earlier um that I sort of kind of hit on is that you know how do we know things and frequently I have figured out how I feel about something Mm -hmm. after I've written about it you know sometimes I may have I'm like man this this concept or this uh, experience has really bothered me and I don't really know how to put my hands on it necessarily. And, right. But I sit down, I write it, I hammer it out, I revise it. And then when I'm done, I go, oh, this is now how I feel about exactly. it. And it feels very much like I've taken these concepts, these things in my mind, but I've been able to write about it in such a way that I go, okay, this is the thing. And it kind of sounds like maybe with some of your poetry, maybe – is there a kind of a sense of that kind of coming to an understanding through the process of of poetry for you? Oh, always, always. I mean, I don't know if I arrive at exactly what I feel because our our sense of ourself, I believe, is quite fluid. And so beliefs that I held when I was, for example, 16, I'm 46 now, they're not identical. We want to amalgamate a sense of ourselves into a whole. And so we some people ag- aggressively revise our history of who we were. I'm not that interested in that. I'm more interested in exposing the contradictions of selves. And that's painful, but that's true to me. Um, And I think that's what writing does for me, is it looks at paradox, contradiction, difficulty, irreconcilable questions. So I agree with you that I'm trying to answer them, but that the answers that I often come up with are, are the process of the poem is trying to answer rather than specifically arriving at a definitive answer. Um, I tend to be always more interested in questions anyway. And um, that's just how my mind works. So I think that's how I write poetry is with the questions guiding rather than what exactly I decide. Um, Yeah. Without being flip, it feels like it has to either be hard before or hard during. You're either struggling it when you're trying to get it out or you struggle with it and then you sit down and and then you get in that great rhythm where, yeah. where, where everything just comes. Yeah, I think it's always the struggle is the, 
the before, during, and the uh, after <laughs> in a way. The after, I only mean that by, by way of saying revision is a, a long process where I'm interested in seeing what I maybe tentatively write and then what else could this possibly say. Mm. Um, so I will revise poems to say the opposite of what I first said, Sophie, which is, I mean, Sophie, I just called you the prize oh. we were talking about. <laughs> That's fine with me. Stephanie, yes. <laughs> we were talking about the prize you won earlier. Yeah, we were talking about the Sophie yeah. Kerr prize. But I, I think I revise in the direction of seeing what else I might believe, actually. And that's not giving an answer that's truer to some statement that I first made. It's about what else could this poem say? Um, strangely, I think that the poems have their own mind. And that as the writer, I am there to um, be a participant in that and shaping it. But that I'm also observing what the poem is telling me it might want to be. Often, though, it's boring, Tony. It's not about um, questions. It's about syntax. It's about music. So some of the things that I think the process of writing is dictating is not semantic meaning or argument, but sound. And oh, that's sure. a funny thing to think about, but I think most poets understand that. Yeah. Well, I, I do another podcast that I have yeah. to write first, and then I have to read. And I started talking with a poet not too long ago about... I'm just starting to understand that there's a difference, a, like a real difference between I'm writing this to be read and I'm writing this to be heard. And writing this to be heard, I never realized, for example, how much I leaned on alliteration until I had to start course, saying it out loud. Of course. And I'm like, well, you can't. You, you sound like a moron when you try to say that over and over and over again. Sure. It looks good on paper, but out loud it sounds. And that's where I, I think. That's what you're saying once you get Absolutely. to the... Absolutely. Or maybe the reverse. I would think that something that's highly literative would sound really good out loud. Not with my voice. But I'm a poet, <laughs> so I might believe that echo of sound, i.e. rhyme in a loose sense, is the way to go. Um, yeah, I think you're right that um, we write ahead of our own understanding. And so sometimes the parts of our mind that are engaged are the ear, the listening part of the mind. Sometimes for me, they're the voice, the dramatic part character driven if you were a fiction writer mm. but I'm not writing fiction because I just don't care what happens next so that's a di bit of a difficulty <laughs> <for her. laughs> right. but I do like character I do sure, like sure. attitude and voice which is all what we think about with that that's a different part of the mind to write from so there are lots of parts I also like argument and rhetoric so that's another aspect those things lead us I think in a way when we're drafting and so for me revision is also about coming back and saying hmm, this is what I have. What are the materials and how can I shape these towards some particular end? Um, to go back to the Burns project, what surprised me, which is to say we're going to eventually answer, I think, the question that you posed. Um, what surprised me, and I shouldn't be surprised by this, is that um, the voice that I ended up caring more about and hearing more is this imagined character who is his mixed-race great-granddaughter. Oh. And that is not surprising, given my own history right. and the body oh. of my work. <laughs> but it surprised me nonetheless, because I was like, no, I'm going to write about Robert Burns. Right. And what I'm writing a lot is actually not exactly about Robert Burns. So he's in there, but he's the point of address as often as the speaker. <laughs> it's it's so, almost like that, that historical... Yeah. Uh, historical fiction. People are people are crazy about yes. historical fiction. Yeah, it is yeah. like historical fiction, yeah. and it's a little also, I don't know, time travel-y. Right. There's elements of it that clearly are the the culture impinging on my 
sense of what's possible. Sure. And I, you said something a moment ago that sort of just kind of also stuck with me that for you, the, the poems kind of have their own life and yes. that you're sort of bearing witness to where they are. And we talk with fiction writers who will say that their characters, you yeah. know, come to life and then their characters, like once they've kind of birthed them on the page, the characters then proceed to do as they will, as they oh, yeah. wish. And really the writer at that point is like, well, I got to let them do what they're going to do. Exactly. You know, and it was just interesting to me. We've heard that so frequently with fiction writers mm-hmm. um, that it's just interesting to me that you sort of have almost that same parentage of the poem going on. That like once you once you become the living witness to that poem, that yeah. all of a sudden it becomes sort of it kind of takes its own and you sort of have to be sort of the guide for it. Maybe. Right. right. And it is, I think parenting is a good analogy um, because I am a parent and I do think there is something quite similar with recognizing the autonomy of this this creature um, and at the same time guiding and shaping it aggressively. Both of those are true in parenting in my experience. So you're always trying to find the best way to aggressively shape your child. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it may appear very passive, but in fact you are actively trying your best to do that. But at the same time, I think recognizing the distance between you and increasingly, you know, my children are 15 and 13. So increasingly that they are their own people and that they are unknowable in some sense to you. And I find that beautiful and frustrating about writing and parenting both. Uh, I say to my children uh, now that they're older, I'll say, okay, they'll ask me a question about school and I'll say, okay, these are the answers. And I said, and now I'm going to take this opportunity to brainwash you a little bit. And I'll just (laughs) write out out in the open. Here's what I think very strongly. Right, right. (laughs) That's a good strategy because I think if you don't do that, they know it's anyway and they resist it all the more. So it's a kind of, it's a very ironic, disarming way of guiding your handling. (laughs) I like that, Tony. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I always like to ask poets is how did you know you were a poet and maybe not a nonfiction writer or you know a reporter or and and also you're 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 not only making a living of it but you you emigrated to do it you know and that's 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 pretty rare not a lot of jamaican poets working 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 here in the united states there are more now actually i was one of the first to I think really one of the first, but there there were a couple others, but now there's a whole other generation ah. younger than I, and I know those writers, they're marvelous poets, Jamaican poets who live in the United States. So my experience is a little different. I didn't emigrate with the will of coming here. My family chose that for me. Ah. So it's a, I, would, I would misspeak. I mean, I think the writers who I know who have come here, they did more of what you're describing. They came for university and stayed. Mm-hmm. Um, I also would say I don't make a living as a poet. I make a living indirectly as a poet. So I teach. That is my vocation. Mm. And I publish work. And because I teach at a university and they care a lot about what I publish in order to hire me, one could say that poetry is the house that, you know, built everything I have. And that's true Mm. in one sense. But in another, I'm really a teacher. That's that's my job, and that's my vocation. So I think poetry is my avocation. That's kind of how I've always thought of it. Uh-huh. Um, I'm per, per, I presume it's because I like to keep poetry separate from 
the work that you can, I do. You can still like it. Yeah, well, I, everything I do is, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, nothing makes you hate poetry as much as reading too much of it. Um, nothing makes it sound more insincere than reading too much. I'm not even joking. No. Um, you know, and maybe this is true for fiction writers that this happens or nonfiction writers. If you read too much of it in a sitting, you kind of feel like, oh gosh, I can see all the moves. It sounds really pretentious. It doesn't move me anymore. And so I, I really think poetry is best in small doses. It's not an art that's meant to be experienced conveniently for where we are today as a marathon. Mm. Ah, makes um, sense. It's, it's not that kind of an art. It's sh a short form, and it requires a lot of concentration, so best to treat it that way um, and engage with it that way. It's like if you go to an art museum, I don't know about you all, I have about one hour. <laughs> <laughs> one hour. And then I'm not seeing anymore. I might be gazing and glancing, but I'm not seeing. And so what's the point? I've now exhausted what I can do. I need to go away and come back again. So I think of poetry that way too. I cannot sustain my attention in a pure way mm. for a form that's a short form that demands something like that. So poetry as a sprint, not a marathon. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Makes yeah. me feel better at how much I hate two-hour-long poetry readings. Oh, I, I think um, <laughs> two hours is a terrible idea 20 minutes is the appropriate length for poetry reading and i ran a poetry center and i sat through many i've sat through hundreds and hundreds of poetry readings bless you um yeah i know <laughs> and i'm a poet saying yeah. this 20 minutes people should really adhere to the human attention span and particularly in a form where there is no plot to pull you through there is not the story that is going to pull you through um it's one of the reasons that that great readers of poetry often focus more on the oral elements of the poem than they are focusing on the narrative elements. Or if there are narrative elements, you know what they do? They give you the story before you hear the poem so that you can pick them up. It's ah. too hard in a poem to hear it. To me, it's more akin to singing, which I also, you know, practice singing. So I think that that's a little uh, um, gratuitous of me to say that. Mm. But I think a poetry reading should be more like a sung performance. Yes, and, and less and less like a middle school battle of the bands. Yes, <laughs> always. Anything should be not like a middle school battle of the bands. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So but, no, I, just, I didn't answer your question. Oh, no, that's you know, fine. Stephanie. But no, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. I think because I started out as a terrible poet. I mean, that's sort of my... When I, when I first started writing, I was writing poetry, and it was awful, and it was awful. And it wasn't until I got to college... To Washington College and took yeah. creative nonfiction that I became a short story writer, an essayist, and started creative nonfiction. And I and I found the method through which I needed to express myself in the best way. And I realized it, that poet I, I needed more words than poetry would give me. <laughs> I needed mm -hmm. more minutes on stage than what poetry would would hand to me. So, how did you know it was how poetry know that? for you? So I never knew anything else. Um, so that's partly what I would say is that I didn't really study creative writing like a lot of my students now do as early as they did. I was um, a lover of reading poetry and I wrote it on my own as a teenager. But my, as I mentioned, my practice, if I had one of art, was theater, singing, dancing and acting. I did that all from about 12 to about 20. Poetry was not in my purview. I didn't know anybody who was, everybody I read was a was a dead Englishman who was about <laughs> 200 years dead. And so it just simply didn't, I've said this story so many times it sounds absurd, but it really didn't occur to me that 
people were still writing poems. I don't know. They must have been alive when they wrote them. So this is kind of bizarre that it didn't right. dawn on me. And certainly not. I'd never seen anything like my life or my grandmother's life or my grandmother's, you know, sister's life or any of the women I knew. None of them were in poems. And so I just didn't know that one could do this. So I went to university like most Jamaicans do, I think, to be a doctor. Um, because that's what you do when you're a Jamaican immigrant, <laughs> if you go to university. <laughs> and then I took uh, the romantics as a first year student. I had done AP work in high school, so I could get out of freshman composition and took romantics. And I took three courses in the British romantics. And I really think that I was first and foremost a reader and lover of poetry and secondarily then um, just beginning to write it. I did eventually, at the end of undergraduate, take a creative writing workshop, and that really did change my perception, but it was always poetry. Um, I write a lot of nonfiction, creative nonfiction, and also sort of essays about poetry, and I love the essay. I love the personal essay. But I even came to that later, and it always was through the door of poetry because I thought I was writing a prose poem, and then it just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And I was like, oh, I think I'm writing an essay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know how, how genre works. I think I have the ideas and I have the music of the language uh, that are guiding me. And often I'm just interested in voice and vocalizing certain things. Um, and then, then it's shaped by that. Um, I joked that I couldn't be a fiction writer because I don't really care what happens next, and that's true, too. I think the only forms that I like as a writer, not as a reader, I love fiction, um, are short forms because I love their intensity, and I love that the, all the focus and pressure is on the present in the space of the poem or the essay. And that's where my attention is drawn. I always think of Frida Kahlo, and I think, yes, that's my model. You know, that's what's interesting. So, but I don't know if I've answered your question. No, that's still, perfect. Stephanie, no, that I'm is sorry. perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> we were talking earlier about this kind of process of discovery, and I hit on an analogy a, a, a couple of days ago, and it's just been sticking with me. It's um, there's a there's a, a question that no one cares about in math except people that are really hardcore in math and me, um, which is like, are numbers created or discovered? Ah, okay. And I, I'm I'm. You know, I'm I'm in the I'm in the created like we made up the numbers so that we could do the things. Um, but whether they're created or discovered, you're committed to it. Once you start, you're committed to some rules. You've you've made these arbitrary rules, but now you're committed to them one way or the yeah, other. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when you were talking about discovering that the poem was different from what you had intended it to be. Yeah. I think we come to the page a lot of times committed to something that we don't like our initial commitment dictates where we end up even though we don't know what our initial commitment maybe is like you know i'm going to try to write um about this apple and then as you start to think about the apple sure. it, it kind of comes apart that way and then when it comes back together it was there from the beginning but we didn't know that we had been committed to this route until we were already halfway halfway down it right so I'll go back to the, just to riff on the first thing you said, mm. which interests me is about the notion of maths and the creation or the pre-existing uh, notion of numbers. It's a lot like God. It's a lot like the question of signs in the universe. Are they there or are we reading them? Mm. Do we construct them? And I'm very interested in that question. And at the end of the day, I don't know the answer, but I do know that it doesn't seem to matter to me. The fact is that we have numeracy 
And the fact is that we read the world in order to have meaning. Mm. So whether the signs are actually there or we just are creating patterns and putting them together because that is what the human mind does. Mm. The act of analogy is so central to how we are as humans. It's central to poetry is this equals this sign signifier relationship between things. Now I have a pattern. It's central to maths, which I actually love that you brought in maths and that notion that you have, you know, patterns and puzzles that you're, you're seeing or you're creating. I don't know which. But you're locked but in one way or the other as a or, participant. Or you're in the middle. It's not necessarily even that important to me to discern whether or not they they pre-exist me or that I create them as much as that that activity of trying to read them is engaging to us and creates meaning. That's so fantastic. That was where I riffed on your well, that's really interesting <laughs> comments. Well, now, now that's what I'll be thinking about for the rest of this week. Uh, <laughs> So. All right, Stephanie. Well, now it's a part of the show where we thank the guest. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank this you so 30 much. 30 minutes. Wow. It's been 30. It by. It surely <laughs> did. But thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Loved talking to you both. So What's Your Story was produced by Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com, where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, take a second and give us a great review. Tell your story.